off light rain. It is five degrees. London police are investigating a crash this morning involving a female pedestrian. It was just before 10 when police say a woman was hit at the intersection of Horton and Wellington. It's not clear how badly she was hurt, but police say she was treated and transported to hospital by paramedics. Southbound traffic was blocked off for about half an hour as police worked on scene. It has since reopened. A 58-year-old man suffered serious injuries this morning after a crash outside of St. Thomas. Elgin OPP say they were called around 2.30 this morning to Sunset Drive north of Major Line. They say a vehicle went off the road and hit a pole. The 58-year-old male driver, who was the only person in the vehicle, was treated and transported to hospital by paramedics in serious condition. Investigators say his condition changed to life-threatening once at hospital. Officers say charges are pending on the uh, completion of the investigation. Traffic is still closed along Sunset Drive between Major Line and Highway 3. The City of London's looking to up the ante when it comes to cracking down on rowdy, unsanctioned parties in the areas surrounding Western University and Fanshawe College. A new report going to committee next week calls for increased fines for relevant offenses and for the city to be able to recoup losses of the cost of emergency services. The report says those fees would be collected in the same way property taxes are. Councillor Phil Squire is hopeful the fines will act as a deterrent. I can tell you if the owner starts getting fined for things that are happening in a house, that's going to hit them in the pocketbook, and I think that's going to give them a real incentive. Under the amended terms, the maximum fine for a nuisance party would increase from $10,000 to $25,000. The city's been focusing on cracking down on unsanctioned parties on Bruffdale Avenue near Western during fake homecoming or FOCO celebrations, which last year drew roughly 20,000 people onto the street. A young man says it tears him apart that there have been no breakthroughs in the investigation of his mother's murder. Sean Leckie was eight years old when his mom, Lisa Leckie, was found dead in her South London apartment 10 years ago. 980 CFPL's Lenny Lambrink has more. Sean Leckie often wonders how his life might have been different if his mom was still alive. The 25-year-old mother of two was found in her Southdale Road apartment on March 24, 2009. Police revealed just last week that she died from asphyxiation and that the killer left a typewritten note. She was such a kind person. I don't think that anyone uh, who came in contact with her could have truly hated her because she was just such a a well-meaning person. Leckie, now 18 years old, admits he doesn't remember the sound of his mother's voice anymore. But that doesn't mean all the memories have faded. Back when I was that age, I really liked the idea of picnics and eating outside. So we would go to the park and I was super into bugs and I'd catch all the bugs and then we'd eat a picnic. And it it was like a, a once a month, twice a month thing that we'd do. And uh, that really sticks out to me. Like he says, it astounds him. No one has come forward with information that has significantly impacted the case, and he's pleading for someone to say something. His mother's death remains one of London Police's most recent unsolved homicide investigations. You can hear Lucky's full interview on 980 CFPL's The Craig Needle Show this morning. Lenny Lambrink, 980 CFPL. It's the day all baseball fans will look forward to, opening day in the major leagues. The Toronto Blue Jays will start their season this afternoon against the Detroit Tigers. 980 CFPL is once again your home for the Blue Jays. You can hear today's game on 980 CFPL. First pitch is set for 337. Immediately following the Blue Jays game, you'll hear game four of the London Knights Windsor Spitfires playoff series. The Knights lead that series 3-0. You're listening to 980 CFPL. Hello and welcome to London Live. It's Thursday, March 28th, 2019. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. 
Mike's traveling with the London Knights today. The Knights play in Windsor tonight in Game 4 of their first-round playoff series. London leads the series three games to none, so a win tonight will put them into the second round. You will hear Mike on today's show. We will preview tonight's game, which you can hear on 980CFPL. We will also preview the upcoming Toronto Blue Jays season. 980CFPL is once again your home for the Blue Jays in London. So on the radio today, you'll hear the Blue Jays take on the Detroit Tigers. The broadcast starts at 3 p.m. First pitch is slated for 3.37. Right after the game, we will transition into the London Knights game. Also on today's show, we'll talk about the environment and climate change. We'll talk to economist Don Drummond about Ontario's incoming carbon tax. We'll talk to Ontario's outgoing environment commissioner, Diane Sachs. We'll get the latest on what's going on with Brexit. And we will talk to former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner about London's search for a new police chief. It's a busy show and we will start it by talking to Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire about FOCO. On Monday, a staff report will be discussed that recommends increasing the maximum fine under London's public nuisance bylaw to $25,000. This will be discussed next Monday at City Hall. Will that change some minds? Bruffdale and FOCO are both in Phil's ward. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Uh, FOCO is uh, an issue. Uh, I will say up front, I don't know what the answer to it is, because uh, it's it's one that we don't uh, aren't alone in facing. A lot of other communities uh, across the country facing similar issues. Uh, do you think increasing the maximum fine to $25,000 under the uh, nuisance bylaw will make a difference on this? Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest problems that we have in the area is is the nuisance parties. And by that, I mean parties, not a one-night party that students may have in their house on occasion. I'm talking about houses where there's habitual parties or parties that get out of control to the extent that they become a nuisance to the neighborhood. In other words, they interfere with other people in the neighborhood. And what we have had difficulty doing is, 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 dealing with both the ownership and the residents of, the, of those buildings. So now what we can do is, for places that are habitually bad, in other words, they're having parties uh, that are dangerous, you know, where, where people are drinking on the roof or that sort of stuff, we can say to them, look, one, maybe we'll give you a warning tonight and clean out, you know, clear out the party. Next time, there'll be a charge and you'll get a fine. And if it keeps on going, you're going to start getting to that level of fine where it's going to be a real problem for both the owner of the property and the people living in it. And the owner's going to have a really strong incentive to avoid those fines to make sure that 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 isn't happening. Now, with regard to the actual street party that goes on on that day, a big part of it is the houses that are along the street that are are not uh, owner-occupied, but they're largely occupied by students, and they get completely out of control and sort of serve as a base for the street party. This will enable our staff on that particular day to go in, give a warning, and say, look, this is a nuisance party. You've got people drinking on the roof. You've got people all over the place uh, causing problems. Shut it down, or you're going to get charged. And I can tell you, if the owner starts getting fined for things that are happening in a house, that's going to hit them in the pocketbook, and I think that's going to give them a real incentive uh, to take action. So it's not a magic bullet. It's one piece sort of in the arsenal of things that can slow down the sort of extreme uh, partying that we're seeing. Yeah, I, I don't think it could hurt, but uh, like the $25,000, like the max wouldn't be applied 
uh, on the first go around. So it may take uh, a couple years for it to get exactly. to that. And we don't want it to, the problem is we don't want it to get to, we don't want this to be a problem three years from now still. Oh, no. And people, when people see maximum fine, they think right away, oh, this, uh, you're going to get charged and right away there's going to be this fine. It never happens like that. Courts generally will not start going to those levels unless we've got a really very serious problem. And there are houses in, in the area where, where people have had uh, year after year party houses, places where these, these houses are having parties almost every night. And those are the ones we want to we wanna deal with. We don't want to stop students who, on one occasion, maybe get a little bit out of hand, have too noisy a party. That's, that's pretty easy to deal with. We send our bylaw officers over and say, look, enough is enough to shut down the party, and it, and it happens. But these are habitual sort of offenders, and... Um, you know, the Buffdale houses, once a year, they have these massive parties, and, um, you know, we're going to have to deal with that and say to them, look, this is, this is contributing to a public uh, safety issue, and, uh, you know, we may have to look at fines if you can't get control of it as an owner. Is this indicative of all the uh, parties, understanding this is just City Hall at this point, but uh, that all the parties interested in this, like the city, Western, police, everyone, are, are being more proactive on this, uh, talking a little bit more, or can we extrapolate that from, from this? Well, yeah, I think there's, you know, we know that there's groups now, uh, uh, working groups at both the university and within the city and combinations working on this particular issue. And what they said, and I agree with this, there is not, and, and this is the problem with North America wide. I mean, people in London have to know it's not a London issue. It's, it's happening everywhere. And in, in places like Waterloo, it's, it's much, much larger, actually. So what we're doing is trying to say, look, we're going to have all these different things that we're going to be doing. All of them are going to chip away at the problem, and we're going to get this problem under control. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, uh, students at Western shouldn't have fun in London. That doesn't mean they shouldn't have a party on homecoming. I think they should enjoy themselves, and I think Londoners are willing to accept that. It's just the public safety issue, and by that I mean people getting injured at a party. We've got to get control of that. The Some of the response, because I've even seen some, you know, there's some news stories out there uh, yesterday, and they talked to the kids, and uh, they didn't seem to, uh, they had a, a somewhat cavalier attitude. I mean, there's there's Western students at large, and then there's some of these students in particular, and um, it's unfortunate to see those kids who are involved in, who live on Bruffdale, largely involved in this, uh, really don't seem to be owning up to the, the issue that, that is at hand here. Well, I think what you have to do in those circumstances is, uh, is we have to take steps ourselves. And, you know, when we have the, the sort of, uh, you know, arrows in our quiver that we can use to shut down parties and, and, and have fines, we will use them. We have to use them. The public's asking us to do more. And so I think it's going to start getting beyond the point of just saying, let anything happen. I think, you, I think you're going to see some incremental changes, but please keep in mind, this is not a one-year fix. This is, this is a change of culture. It's a change in enforcement, and, and it's going to take time. How students react to it, I think, I think uh, is going to be interesting. I hope uh, that they'll start to understand that, that having fun uh, is different than, than causing a public safety issue. And, and by public safety issue, I mean people getting injured uh, and, and us having to use our police force to, to maintain order. And those are things that, that we don't want to do. And, you know, we will, I know, uh, start taking steps to make sure this doesn't happen. 
Is there anything you would like to see happen? I know you've uh, been asked that question probably a million times at this point, but anything you would like yeah, to see? Yeah, I would like to see, yeah, I would definitely like to see the, the uh, Western University and the affiliated colleges in extreme cases, cases where students are causing a real problem, a particular student is causing an extreme problem in the community, look at their codes of conduct. And again, I don't mean throwing a student out of school for having a beer on a, on a street. I mean, if they become habitually uh, a nuisance and a threat to safety in the city of London, then I think I'm hopeful that the universities and the colleges will, will act on that. And that can be an effective tool, and we've seen that in other jurisdictions. But you ha- the only way to make people understand is to deal with their, sometimes deal with the pocketbook. And that's, that's what uh, fines are about. That's what uh, dealing with nuisance bylaws is all about. And we've had some success in the past, um, and I'm hoping we can, we can have more in the future. But definitely having the educational institutions involved um, with, in terms of enforcing codes of conduct is going to be important, too. Uh, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you about a uh, decision made at the London Transit Commission uh, yesterday, of which uh, you are a part. Uh, yep. s- some routes were uh, were updated yesterday. One in particular stood out to me uh, since there was some opposition from some community uh, neighborhoods uh, to uh, Route 1 changing. It went through, but maybe if you could just explain to the listeners uh, the change there and maybe some of the opposition that was that had... Yeah, so the change actually in two areas, uh, an area called Roundtree, which is at the south end uh, of that uh, route, and also the Woodfield neighborhood, which is on that route, were, were really concerned about loss of service, that they were going to lose some of the service within their neighborhood, access to hospitals and things like that. So they were not happy uh, with that change. Similarly, in the North London neighborhood, there was concerns of loss of service, particularly to Marymount and King's College, but we were able to rectify that. But at the end of the day, um, it did pass. These are not monumental changes. They'll be, they'll be adjusted to, but I was concerned. I would have actually uh, liked to have seen us sort of wait and see because of the BRT element. So one of the elements of this was removing this route off of Richmond Street, largely in my view, because the BRT was going to be on Richmond Street. Once that got out of the equation, um, a lot of people would have preferred to see that route stay on Richmond Street in the North London neighborhood and stay on Huron Street in the North London neighborhood. So overall, there was objections to it, but it's it passed. And what I find is when these things happen, um, that, that people will make the adjustments necessary. So I think to a certain extent these changes, you know, uh, are going to happen. People are going to adjust. They're upset now, but like any change, there'll, there'll be adjustment and we'll move on. The good news is um, at the London Transit Commission is we've made some huge new additions um, to our service. And the one I really want to mention is there's going to be a new express route along uh, from Masonville along Western Road and Warncliffe to downtown, and that's going to be a fast service um, that's really going to help. And, and so when people say, well, there's nothing in, you know, no BRT in, in North London, there's going to be a bus express route on both sides of the Western campus, which I think is, is going to be fantastic. And that's, that's not going to have to wait for any government approval. That's, that's happening, and it's, it's going to be happening next fall. Oh, wow. So that's uh, fall of 2020 then? 19. 19. 19. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Western Road route. So we're going to have an express bus going going all the way from Masonville downtown on the uh, UCC or Western Road side of campus. So I think a lot a lot of that has been sort of lost in the shuffle about uh, chatting about BRT, but it's very important and it's really going to help Western students. Phil, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Always good to be with you. Take care. 
That is Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Are you ready for Ontario's new carbon tax? Legal pot shops aren't the only thing that'll be new as of April 1st. We'll also be getting a carbon tax. The tax comes from the federal government. It'll start in provinces that did not already put a price on carbon. The list of provinces is four deep. Saskatchewan, Manitoba, New Brunswick, and Ontario. Ottawa has promised to return all the funds collected in rebates to individuals, businesses, local governments, and other organizations. The rebates for individuals are already flowing as tax returns get filed, but the promised program to help small and medium businesses has not been finalized. To talk about the carbon tax, we are joined by Don Drummond. He's the former chief economist at TD Bank. He's a commissioner of the Ecofiscal Commission. Thanks for your time today. You're very welcome. Well, uh, putting a price on carbon is not a new idea. In fact, the person who came up with the idea has been awarded a Nobel Prize. And yet in this province, we're still talking about the idea of a carbon tax, not uh, what the best model for carbon pricing would be. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, it it is funny. There is a track record, as you say, having carbon pricing. It seems to work quite well where it's been put in place, and it's not just in some distant, far-off land that we uh, can't really see and feel. It's here right in Canada. We've had quite a successful track record in British Columbia of a version of it, a cap-and-trade system in Quebec that's been in place for a number of years and works quite well. Ironically, the cap-and-trade system in Ontario seemed to be working quite well, and the government scrapped it. So we know that that approach works quite well. We haven't seen alternative approaches applied with any vigorous manner to say, here's something that works as well. So that's a bit of a black box, but we do know from applying model simulations and analyzing the policies that, well, there are alternative policies that could get us to lower emissions. They do have a higher economic cost. So, so their appeal seems to be a little bit mystifying. How effective uh, can financial incentives uh, be regarding uh, change in minds, whether it's uh, climate in this case or anything, really? Well, I think we got ample evidence that people are very responsive to price. I'll just cite one example. You know, every once in a while where there's a gas uh, pump price uh, warfare and the price will go down two or three cents a liter, you've seen the lineups. <laughs> Uh, perverse in a way. I, whenever I see those, I kind of uh, do the estimate, okay, so you're going to wait 30 minutes and you're going to save about $2. Have you actually figured out what that saving is per hour? But we know people respond to that. Uh, we were we'll call in Toronto a few years ago where they put a five-cent charge on taking uh, the non-recyclable plastic bags, and they virtually disappeared. And uh, again, ironically and perversely, the policy uh, got lifted. But we know people are, when they can change their behavior in a way that is not really inconvenient to them, they will respond to price incentives, and we know they'll respond actually to quite modest price incentives. That was going to be my next question because, you know, at least with, with, with the gas, the illusion is, you know, there's, there's greater cost savings than maybe there really is. With, with the plastic bags, five cents is five cents. But it's, so do, the, do prices need to be high for that change to happen or could it be, they be relatively modest, as you say? Well, I, I think change can happen with prices are quite modest, but there is a set of emissions targets that Canada has put out, uh, holding itself internally to and as pledge to the international community. We won't get there with small policy changes of any type, whether that is a 
carbon tax was a cap and trade price or whether it's through regulatory action, uh, the target is, is fairly ambitious and rightly so because the problem of climate change is very severe. So I don't, I don't want to pretend that small changes will get the whole job done, but we know that even modest changes starting as the federal government's backstop would start at $20 a ton does have significant impacts. It will by itself lower emissions, but over time, as the plan would see it going to $50, it would have to rise from that. Uh, any form of action will have to be quite concentrated and, and uh, get steeper over time to get us where we need to go. Uh, one concern uh, people have, or a couple concerns people have, is uh, when, when we talk about this, uh, it's going to cost people jobs, it's going to cost people more. Are those concerns people should have, or are those some myths? Well, the concept being discussed is very different. So when everybody hears the word tax, they think of they're paying something, it's out of their pocket, and then generally they think that money's up being withdrawn from the economy, hence there's an output loss. But that's not what we're talking about here at all. The carbon tax that we're talking about, whether it's implemented in the provinces of British Columbia or the backstop that the federal government is proposing, yes, you do pay that tax when you purchase something that has a carbon intensity to it, but the money comes back to you. And in most cases, uh, households will actually get more money back. So as, as you know, you're walking around, we got two pockets in your jeans, and uh, there is some money that's coming out of one of the pockets, but it's going back into the other pocket. So that money is being recycled back to the economy. There will be changes. The whole point is to make changes. The point is that the consumption and the production should tilt away from things that are carbon-intensive to things that are less carbon-intensive. But overall, there really should be precious little change in the economy. And probably, well, and certainly in the model simulations that we have done at Echo Fiscal Commission and others have done, and looking at the real-life example, it is almost indiscernible that any changes in the economy that come as a result when you do fully recycle the revenues back through the economy. If people do get that rebate, so like uh, you could wonder, like, does that mean there's going to be any change or does that force still people to, you know, maybe uh, more environmentally conscious uh, versions of whatever they were previously purchasing? Well, I think it will still force the change. So, for example, you will know that in a very direct manner when you drive a vehicle or when you heat a home, and especially if you're driving an inefficient vehicle or you are heating a home that is not properly insulated or not using the energy-efficient furnace, you will know very directly how much you're paying, and you will modify that behavior to avoid that cost. But the money will come back to you, so it'll be available for something else. So you will tend to buy something that's more environmentally favorable. That's what tend people do. Um, You know, there's all kinds of ways that you uh, can modify your behavior to avoid your to lower a tax bill, and people tend to take advantage of that. One of the reasons why people make RRSP contributions, uh, I'm sure it's because they're looking way into the future of their retirement, but they also like that uh, tax credit up front. When uh, people see the word tax, they think uh, money grab. Is this uh, a money grab, carbon pricing? Well, no, it isn't. It's not a money grab for anybody. Uh, It's neutral for the provinces that have implemented it because they are recycling the money. And in the federal backstop, all of the money collected by the federal government in a jurisdiction, whether provincially or territorially, will come back to the people at jurisdiction. So it's a net effect of big fat zero in terms of the government net effect and total in the economy of a zero revenue flow. It's money coming out from carbon-intensive activities to go back, hopefully, to less carbon-intensive. But nobody's grabbing any money on this one. 
The uh, carbon tax that starts uh, on Monday in Ontario and Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Manitoba, uh, it's, it's starting in Ontario because we did not have uh, cap and trade, uh, or we had tra- cap and trade, got rid of that. Do you have a preference between uh, what is going to start on Monday and what we previously had, or is just putting a price on carbon the important starting point at least? There are certainly differences between the cap and the trade and the carbon price. I think either one of them is fine. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, if we revise history, given the cap and trade was already in place, I would have preferred just to see it already in place because it, you know, put, let's face it, it does cause some disruption to implement it. It caused even more disruption to get rid of it, and now we're putting something back. So it would have been smoother just to stay with the same thing. But uh, starting over again, uh, whether it's cap and trade, we've seen successful models of that in Canada and elsewhere, and we've certainly seen even more successful examples of the carbon price. So I think the important thing is to put a price on the carbon and the mechanism secondary to that. Don, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That is Don Drummond, former chief economist at TD Bank and commissioner at Ecofiscal Commission. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Good afternoon. It is 1.30 on Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. We have some cloudy skies. It is 7 degrees. A week after spring officially arrived, the boys of summer are ready to take the field. Today is opening day in the major leagues, and the Toronto Blue Jays will be in action at home against the Detroit Tigers. This season will be all about the future for the Blue Jays. The Jays have a new manager, a new shortstop, a new starting catcher, a new bullpen, and a new starting rotation, as well as a younger team overall. 980 CFPL is once again your home for the Blue Jays. You can hear today's game on 980 CFPL. First pitch is set for 337. Immediately following the Jays game, you'll hear game four of the London Knights Windsor Spitfires playoff series. The Knights lead the series 3-0. A female pedestrian was injured after she was hit by a vehicle in the Soho neighborhood this morning. London police were called out just before 10 to the intersection of Horton and Wellington. The extent of the woman's injuries is not known, but police say she was treated and transported to hospital by paramedics. Southbound traffic was blocked off for a little more than half an hour as police worked on scene, but it has since reopened. Police in Elgin County are probing the cause of a crash near St. Thomas. The collision happened around 2.30 this morning on Sunset Drive north of Major Line. Officers say a vehicle went off the road and hit a pole. The 58-year-old male driver, who was the only person in the vehicle, was treated and transported to hospital by paramedics. Investigators say he was life, uh, he's in life-threatening condition. Officers say charges are pending. Traffic is still closed in both directions between Sunset Drive, between Major Line and Highway 3. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he can't understand Quebec's move to legitimize discrimination. The provincial government tabled legislation today to prohibit public sector employees in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols at work. Trudeau says Canada is a place that respects the rights of citizens, including freedom of expression, conscience and religion. However, he would not comment on the specifics of the bill until he's had a chance to look at it more closely. You're listening to 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Ontario's Environmental Commissioner says the state of climate policy in the province is inadequate and frightening. 
Diane Sachs delivered her last report on Wednesday after the Progressive Conservative government eliminated her office, merging its functions with the Auditor General. Premier Doug Ford had promised that not a single job would be lost under his government, but Sachs says this move has meant 12 people are losing their jobs. To talk about all of this, we are joined by Diane Sachs. Thanks for your time today. Uh, It's my pleasure and honour. Thank you for your interest. Your final uh, report was uh, quite critical of the provincial government. Um, What concerns do you have about Ontario's uh, current climate and environmental uh, policies? Well, on on climate policy, I I do find really frightening because the danger grows every day. The available time is shrinking away, and Ontario is busy running in the wrong direction. Uh, We see so many actions from the provincial government that are going to drive off our climate pollution just when we know we must most urgently be be reducing it, and then particularly in relation to petroleum fuels, which are our largest source of energy and our largest source uh, of uh, climate and air pollution, which directly affects human health. Your time as Ontario's environmental commissioner is coming to an end. During your tenure, what has it been like? Uh, do you feel at times like you're kind of like screaming into your pillow about this issue, and sometimes you have like a, a you know a, 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 an eager audience, or what, what, what's that been like? Yes, both of the above. Um, Seth Klein said, I think quite rightly, that working on climate issues means walking a knife edge between hope and despair. Uh, there's lots of facts to justify despair, but if we just give up, then there is no hope. So the hope comes from looking the facts in the face and then turning to other people and finding ways to work together. There is still a little time to make a big difference in what's coming, but that time is right now. We have a uh, carbon tax in this province uh, starting on Monday. It's uh, coming from the federal uh, government since uh, the cap-and-trade program that uh, was implemented by the previous uh, provincial government was cancelled. Uh, are, are we doing enough in Ontario to to tackle climate change, or or should we be doing more? We're absolutely not doing enough to tackle climate change. The, the current government is doing as absolutely little as it can to tackle climate change, and as I say, they're doing many, many things that are going to drive emissions up, not down. Um, the federal carbon tax is a lot better than nothing. I am um, convinced that cap-and-trade was better for Ontario in terms of climate. It certainly provided a fund of money, which the, the price on carbon and the fund together was driving significant investment in improving equipment, in innovation. We saw industries bring four times, for every dollar of cap-and-trade money that big industries got, they brought four dollars um, of their own, and much of that from outside Ontario. So we were doing great things until last June, but the uh, price on carbon will be much better than nothing. Not enough, but still useful. No, I mean, well, I, the the province did. Uh, they kind of they've one of the things that Ontario's done is kind of moved down to federal levels. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the federal government, well, you're right, you're, they're doing something. I mean, it's it's not exactly uh, like a carbon tax is uh, some sort of cure-all. Well, no, it isn't. Uh, on the other hand, putting up the, the just after Ontario turned its back on cap-and-trade, though Nobel Prize for Economics was given to the men who proved that putting a price on carbon 
is the best, cheapest, most effective way of moving to a cleaner economy. And one of the things I showed in my report yesterday is that reducing fossil fuel use makes us better off in so many different ways. It saves us money. It is better for the climate. It's better for public health. It, it gives us so many benefits that we're turning down. I mean, here's a simple fact. Ontario spends between $1.6 and $2 billion a year just importing fossil fuels. 75% of the energy we use in Ontario is imported fossil fuels, and that money drains out of the economy just every single year. If we were even 10% more efficient, we could keep $1.5 to $2 billion every year, and we've shown, the data show, that cost-effectively we could be 30% more efficient and still save money. But we're not doing it. Your office is being folded into the Auditor General's office. Um, who will be doing the work you've been doing in the future? I don't think it's correct to say my office is being folded into the Auditor General's with all due respect. My office is being eliminated. Um, some of the things I uh, have done, such as being a champion of environmental rights, the government claims they don't need anybody independent to do it. Everybody can just trust the government. Uh, I don't. Uh, some of the things that I've been doing, the Auditor General may or may not do, but she'll be doing it um, in a more limited framework, in an audit framework, um, and she does it from the point of view of putting money first. I put environment first. So effectively, we won't really have an environmental watchdog in this province? No, not, not the way I am. We'll, we'll have some audit function out of the Auditor General, but that's um, a, a, very, a very partial substitute and from a very different point of view. That loan is concerning in terms of, you know, how important climate change is these days and should be. Well, it's not just, <laughs> it's not just climate. My three mandates, energy, environment, yes, and climate, yes. they are all intimately related. They are increasingly essential to the lives of Ontarians uh, today and tomorrow. And yes, the changes to the Environmental Bill of Rights that this government has brought in uh, should be of concern to all Ontarians. We've lost We've lost something really significant, and uh, it'll take. People have told me, thousands of people all over the province have told me how much they value the work of our office, and that they get information, insight, and inspiration that they find nowhere else, and that's going to be gone. I started this interview by saying your final report. Uh, I understand there's going to be one more uh, release from your office uh, today uh, with some information that Ontarians uh, would be interested in. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, as I mentioned, I've given hundreds of talks around Ontario to all kinds of folks, and one of the questions people ask me everywhere is, I understand the need to speak up, but what do you do as an individual that really matters? And we haven't had access to good data that is Ontario-specific on the impact of individual lifestyle actions. So I'm releasing that today. It'll be on our website, eco.on.ca. I'd encourage everyone interested in, you know, in that in our work, go to our website now while you can, dco.on.ca, download the fact sheet and any of the other information uh, that you're interested in. We've got some great reports on climate, and I hope they'll continue to be available after our office is eliminated, but I can't count on it. I, I can't guarantee it. I, I appreciate your work as Environmental Commissioner, and I thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, and have a great day. That's Ontario's outgoing environmental commissioner, Diane Sachs. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Uh, The circus that is Brexit continues to unfold on the other side of the pond. British lawmakers voted last night on eight different possible Brexit options, but none received majority support. Uh, They are also uh, dealing with a situation where uh, Theresa May has offered to resign if that will help get a deal done. But it's unclear if that would help. To talk about this, we are joined by Dan Gorman. He's a history professor at Waterloo University. He specializes in Britain and Brexit. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Pleasure. Uh, It seems like every time we talk about this, it gets more and more complicated and bizarre. Uh, British MPs uh, voted on eight different Brexit Brexit options uh, yesterday. All eight failed. It's like uh, herding cats over there. The, I, I don't know how this ends. Like, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> yes, I'm reminded when I was a kid, one of my favorite uh, uh, movies was The NeverEnding Story. <laughs> and this, uh, this very much resembles that. Like, um, it, it seems as though, like, do we know what they want? I know, I know what they want, you know, generally, but it seems as though there's no consensus. Like, at a certain point, they got to understand they've got to make a decision, and they, they seem incapable of doing that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really where Parliament is right now. Um, I mean, as you said yesterday, the House voted uh, on a series of uh, so-called indicative uh, uh, measures, um, essentially sort of a straw poll to see if any of the various options uh, that might modify. Theresa May's current deal, which has been voted down twice, um, and none of those passed. So, and this has been the situation for some time. MPs are essentially agreed on what they don't want, um, but not yet on what they do want. Um, but because some of the deadlines, I mean, they've they've um, been given extensions by the EU. Um, because tomorrow is the uh, date originally that uh, Brexit was to happen. Um, and even though they've been given an, an extension now until uh, uh, mid-April at the moment, uh, nothing really has changed. But the closer they get to the cliff, uh, it looks like uh, a decision will be more likely since some of the people who have opposed various options are now being confronted with the, the sort of reality that uh, again, a, a no-deal Brexit will happen unless Parliament can uh, agree to an alternative. Uh, Theresa May uh, said uh, yesterday that she will resign if her deal is accepted, uh, resign sooner than I guess she had said she would be previously. Will that have any impact on this, or or what do you think? It's hard to say, but it, it may uh, sort of break up some of the logjam. I mean, the kind of root problem, which goes back many decades, is that the Conservative Party itself is split on membership with Europe. Had the entire party uh, been in favor of Brexit, uh, or if Theresa May, as is usually the case in the parliamentary system, of course, um, was able to whip her party to vote the way that the, uh, that the cabinet wishes, this wouldn't have been a problem at all. Uh, but because they have a minority uh, um, themselves and are only propped up for a majority with the, uh, the 10 uh, Democratic Unionist uh, Party MPs from Ireland, they need to negotiate. Um, but part of the, the logjam has been that the kind of hardcore Brexiteers, if you will, in the Conservative Party uh, have long been frustrated with May's sort of 
dithering, if you will. So her decision to step down if and when her um, either her plan itself or some modified version thereof uh, may be enough to tempt some of the sort of soft Brexiteers to vote either for her agreement, after voting it down twice, <laughs> or some modified version of it, um, with the promise that a new prime minister, and it looks like if that happens, it'll probably be a harder Brexiteer, Boris Johnson, uh, Dominic Raab, who used to be the um, the Brexit minister, are some of the contenders, that that might be enough to win the votes that she needs to get her plan through, because it would mean that the new prime minister, who would then be in charge of negotiating uh, the economic agreement with the EU going forward, uh, would presumably be driving a harder bargain. How different could this have been had uh, Theresa May not called a election previously and, and put herself in the position where they are now in, which is that minority government? Well, that's <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, I mean, it, it's really the same uh, uh, kind of mistake that the former Prime Minister David Cameron made when he called the referendum in the first place. Um, essentially, you know, gambling on an outcome that they thought they would uh, secure, and of course it's turned out to be the opposite. Um, but yes, I mean, that's, that's one of the ironies here, is that in many ways May has brought this on herself, and that's why there has been such strong opposition within her own party to her leadership. Um, again, usually in the parliamentary system, uh, we see this in Canada at the moment with Mr. Trudeau's um, struggles lately, um, the prime minister is able to secure the support of his own party, his or her own party uh, in the House. But because she's been so heavily compromised. Um, I mean, it's sort of like the walking dead. She's, <laughs> uh, you know, she, she's been weakened for so long that both the rebels within her own party, as well as parliament itself, have really taken the reins by default. I mean, yesterday, the, all of those votes to sort of see whether there was an alternative to her plan, it was about the, the clearest sign you could get to her weakness in the House. Again, that, that almost never happens where the government has turned over um, the affairs of the House to, you know, the members themselves. The the prospect of another referendum has been floating around. I, I understand the argument from some that they say, you know, the will of the people was to go ahead with Brexit and that's what we're going to do. Uh, you know, I, I fully uh, understand that and a valid response to uh, this idea of another referendum However, when you continually cannot make a decision on how to leave uh, the European Union, I, I, I wonder if that opens the door and, and makes an argument itself for another referendum if we, if we, you know, British MPs can't decide what we want to do. Yeah, that's certainly still uh, a possibility. I mean, that, that has been the line for a long time from some members of the Labour Party. That's one of the other problems here, is that the Labour Party itself is split on Brexit, <laughs> and a good number of Labour MPs represent um, riding seats where um, their constituents voted for Brexit. So the Labour Party is also sort of not clear on what they want to do. Because in, in any other situation, a government this weak and frankly incompetent uh, would be sort of uh, uh, bulldozed by an opposition but that's, that's one of the problems here. 
But yes, I mean, on the weekend, there were uh, millions upon millions of people um, protesting and calling for a so-called people's referendum. Um, and that could happen. But as you say, that is difficult because it goes against the will of the people from the first referendum. It'll, uh, it'll be fun to watch. Uh, Dan, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk. That's Dan Gorman, professor at Waterloo University. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. That is it for hour one of the program. We've got a busy second hour coming up for you. We will be talking to former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner about some concerns he has about the search currently underway for London's next police chief. I will also talk a bit about the street preachers. They've been in the news lately, and I have some concerns about the way London is talking about street preachers. In the final 30 minutes of the show, we'll talk about the Toronto Blue Jays and the London Knights. Blue Jays season starts today against the Detroit Tigers. You can hear the game on 980 CFPL starting at 3 o'clock with the pregame. First pitch, 337. Right after the Blue Jays game comes the London Knights game. We will talk to Mike Stubbs to preview that as the Knights look to punch their ticket into the second round. We will take a break when we come back. More of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. If you want to be the next Chief of Police for London, now's your chance. The posting for the job went up late last week, and according to the job posting, the London Police Services Board wants someone who's a strong leader and experienced within an urban environment, whatever that means. As we've reported previously, the previous requirement to at least uh, be the chief would be a deputy chief. Uh, That does not apply this time. The job is open to everyone. The board has said they will do this job differently. They've hired a headhunting firm to conduct the search. To talk about all this, we're joined by someone who knows the job and the job search process, former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner. Thanks for your time today. Good afternoon, sir. Thanks for calling. Uh, before we get into the uh, job posting itself, I just want to start with the fact we've uh, got a, a headhunting firm here conducting the search for our next chief. Uh, what do you make the decision to go that way? Because I know in the past when we've talked about this, you've been involved in some of these searches in terms of at least the, the interviews of potential chiefs for other police services. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I'm not against the uh, the hiring of these what you would call headhunting firms. Uh, police services board really do not have the time nor the expertise to to cast a wide net. And when you're looking for a chief of a major police service in Canada, you you really do need to to expand that search. Um, the downfall, I think, though, for head for for boards using headhunt companies, if they don't realize it, is that. I would call it they have a stable of candidates. So the current company that the London Police Services Board has hired uh, have a number of probably police executives in their uh, portfolio that have applied for other jobs that they haven't received. And therefore, uh, they can bring these candidates forward. And I don't suspect that the headhunting company tells the Police Services Board that uh, this is a candidate that applied in another department that didn't get the job. So there are pluses and minuses, that's for sure, of using this company. This company uh, currently is looking for uh, chiefs and deputy chief of Brantford, and I believe they are also used for the hiring of the OPP commissioner. So, you know, they'll have candidates already uh, ready for a job interview. One factor in all of this, when we were talking a little bit 
uh, just before we started this interview, just the number of openings right now uh, for police in this country looking for chief or a deputy chief, there's, a, there's an un- unusually large number of police services looking for uh, leadership. It seems so. I mean, although I've seen over the past couple of years, the trend on the terms of chiefs of major services seems to be shrinking. It used to be five-plus years. Now it seems to be down to around the four four-year mark. And and the reason that it's concerning to me is that in Ontario alone, there are a number of major services looking for executive leadership. Ottawa, Windsor, Brantford, Peterborough, uh, to the north there's Kenora, Niagara Regional, Windsor, uh, um, Calgary just completed one, Fredericton's looking. So so I would say the, the pool of great candidates is pretty small and therefore um you know internal candidates who the board knows and can trust uh, may have a leg up because um uh, of the number of openings there are i will say though that you know i was concerned when i saw the posting and and knowing that um we had a member of the police services board say that uh, at the beginning that uh, status quo candidates need not apply uh, which meant to me that there is something wrong with the current uh, management or the London Police Service, and then I can speak about that briefly. Mm-hmm. And then when you come out with the the posting that has no reference at all to the fact that you needed to be a police officer, uh, the term that I, I scratched my head at was several years of experience within an urban environment. So, so just for the listeners who who haven't seen the posting, I, I've I've got it in front of me right now, okay. and like, had you not, uh, had they not mentioned in it, you know, this is you know for the London Police Service, London Police Chief is retiring. I wouldn't know the job posting is for a police chief. No, but, it's it's pretty generic, uh, pretty generic posting. I, I don't know whether, in fact, because this company was involved maybe in the OPP posting when they said you needed to be a chief or a deputy chief to apply and and didn't get qualified candidates or they didn't like who applied and then they opened it up to almost any rank but superintendent and that didn't work out too well. Um, you know, I've seen other chief postings uh, that, you know, phrases like uh, a record of police management and leadership at a senior police level, so obviously you need to be a police officer, or in-depth experience and knowledge of uh, the workings of uh, police service. So I have seen postings recently that include uh, the word uh, experience in policing, and so it leaves no uh, no doubt in your mind that you need to be a police officer. But this, this uh, posting is pretty wide open. And so, I don't know, does the London Police Services Board, are they trying to do an experiment? Are they looking to hire a civilian uh, who has managerial experience? I know there's the thought process out there by some people that you don't need to be a police officer. You need to be uh, an executive administrator to run the police service, which I totally disagree with. Um, I think we've seen what happens. The RCMP back in 2007 uh, hired a career civilian service, uh, Bill Elliott, um, and um, was there for several years, but I, I'm, I don't think that worked out to the best for the organization. We're joined on the line by former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner. So the the one line that you, you referenced earlier that's interesting in terms of the whole conversation they're having about who they want this next chief to be is the ideal candidate possesses several years of experience within an urban environment. I, I, I don't know what that 
I don't know what that means, but it seems like they, they're, they're looking for experience um, as a leader, and yet it's open to anyone in the in in the police. Like it's it's uh, in, a, in a police service, so it could you know if, if uh, you know if Devin Peacock was a constable, theoretically, I could apply. I would not because I'd be in, in over my head almost immediately when get the job. But theoretically, I could. But it seems as though they they want you know strong leadership, which you only get with certain positions. But they're saying anyone can apply. They they kind of butt heads there. Yeah, they they certainly do. So so again, is is it an experiment that they're going down the road to? Who knows? Um, so so I'd like to go back though to to why I think maybe internal candidates should have the leg up. So if you look at the London Police and how does it stack up towards policing across not only Ontario but Canada, uh, there used to be a Ontario benchmarking report that would come out, uh, and now it's Canada-wide. So when you look at Canada and uh, policing and how London Police stack up against it, uh, just in police, per, police and civilian per 100,000 population, we're the third lowest in Canada. So we have few police officers. As a matter of fact, the London Free Press uh, back in November of 2018, uh, they had a report on uh, this benchmarking report that talked about the crime severity index. And in, and in London, it had the lowest violent crime rate of all major cities and the second lowest number of police officers, as well as one of the lowest costs per capita uh, in Canada with only one city, and that Halifax being cheaper. So you've got a safe city, you don't have a lot of police officers, and it's the second cheapest to run. So to me, that leaves an indication that, boy, things are pretty good, uh, not only for the taxpayer, uh, but for uh, safety in our city. One of the um, one of the issues that arose during the OPP process with Ron Taverner going from the position he had to potentially OPP commissioner, obviously not doing that anymore, was the number of officers under him. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it was obviously far less than what you know a deputy chief might be involved with, or certainly the commissioner of the OPP or the chief of police. So what maybe if you could just in terms of you know, what it's like to, to take that jump up, because I think that speaks to both um, the, the level of experience needed, but also if you're not a police officer, don't have the policing background, you're just an administrator, then you're ev- that's an even bigger jump to make when you have, you know, 800 plus, you know, officers under your command. So, um, I, London police have had an opportunity to hire as chief of police a superintendent. Actually, he was a, I think, a chief superintendent from Toronto, and that was Julian Fantino. And that was, a, in my opinion, a great success for the London Police Service that really modernized our uh, our police service and, and stood us well for uh, uh, future chiefs. Uh, Brian Collins, uh, for example, uh, was a great chief as well. So... Um, the rank, the rank is one thing. The other thing is, though, that I think that you have the ability to relate to frontline officers. You have the ability to relate to the police services board and to the public at large. And that's why I say for many organizations, the internal candidates are the best because they know the city. The, hopefully the city knows them uh, and that um, uh, they have the respect uh, of the rank and file, you know, it, when you when you are near the top of any organization, uh, 
not everyone likes you, and you're not there for uh, the purpose of being liked by everyone. But you need they need to respect you, and and so when you come from an outside uh, of an organization like policing, uh, it takes a while for that respect uh, to be garnered by everyone. We are joined on the line by former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner. I just think it's an interesting process because I mean they've. Uh, the police board has talked about how they wouldn't be doing their due diligence if they didn't look outside, which I would agree with. You want to make sure yes. that you, you hire the right people. But I, I think oftentimes you, you go with, within because those deputy chiefs do have, uh, you know, an, an institutional advantage where they know the police service in question in particular uh, that, you know, someone from the outside may not. Uh, listen, the, a police services board's most important role is to hire a chief and a deputy chief, in my opinion. That's the most important role they perform. Yes, the budget, in fact, is the Police Services Board budget, but honestly, that is put together by the senior management team of, of uh, every police service and then explained to the board, and then it goes forward to city council. But the hiring, the hiring, and therefore, uh, that's why I have promoted for a while that the interview process is conducted by current serving chiefs of police that the that police services board knows and respects in the province because they would never ever recommend someone for that job that they know that they couldn't do the job themselves and so you know this is um this is a watershed moment for the citizens of London for the police service over 800 staff work there uh, they so the police services board has a very very uh hard task at hand to pick the next successor to Chief Parr. And, and that being said, um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of, of uh, wonder chiefs out there to, uh, to come to London. And, and, and lastly, what is it that you want to change within the organization that, that runs as smoothly and as effectively and as efficiently as it currently does? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, after the comment by Mo Salih uh, about uh, status quo did not apply, he backed down from that. So it's even kind of unclear in terms of what exactly they truly are meaning and they want to get out of this if uh, they've taken this in, they want to do things differently, but also uh, they're, they're kind of backing down from some of uh, the bigger talk that we heard originally. Well, I think, I think now they're starting to, well, first of all, there's not a lot of bench depth on the police services board. Not a lot of members have been there any length of time to even understand the culture, to understand the personnel, and to understand really uh, how policing works in a major urban area. And so I know that, uh, you know, the elected officials and appointed person by council, they're there with good intentions, but honestly, uh, it takes a long while. If you ask past board members when they felt confident in making some of the decisions they have to make, uh, it's, it's in years rather than in, in meetings, dates. Uh, and so, so the number of meetings uh, uh, that some of the board people have attended is very small. Um, I'll, I'll end with this, and I, you've, I, you've kind of touched upon this before, but if you had any advice for the Police Services Board, what, what advice would you, would you give them in this search? Um, well, I, two things is that um, understand that uh, the company that they have hired, uh, really, uh, uh, when all is said and done, uh, that company doesn't have to live with the results of what the board does. And so don't put a lot of trust in the headhunting company. 
do your due diligence, uh, do the best background investigation you can. And, and I will say that background investigations in policing and when we're hiring is extremely important. Uh, we spend months doing background investigations on hiring a constable, and, and police services boards are actually very limited on their ability to, to access and, and reach out to uh, policing community about uh, prospective candidates for chief or deputy chief. So those are the two areas that they need to concentrate on. And, and honestly, don't use the London police as an experiment. I think go with some tried and true leadership. Uh, Murray Faulkner, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Great, sir. Have a great day. That's former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin in for Mike on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to uh, London Live, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Uh, we, we, I went long with, uh, with uh, former uh, London Police Chief uh, Murray Faulkner. There's so only have a few moments here. I wanted to spend a couple uh, minutes, though, talking about uh, London's uh, street preachers because they've been in the news a lot lately, and it's been bugging me. Uh, the issue has been bugging me for, for two reasons. One... Uh, the street preachers themselves and uh, the way they act, the uh, things they say. But two, the response that we see from a lot of Londoners. London has a street preacher problem. We know this. How are we going to solve it? Well, to talk about the street preachers in London is to really play a bizarro game of six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Just about everybody knows a woman who has been accosted on the street. Complaints to City Hall roll in by the dozen. Women are targeted for simply going to work. They're targeted for sexual promiscuity. They're targeted for wearing pants. They're even targeted just for wearing makeup. It should go without saying that women deserve to walk the streets of London free of harassment and abuse. The actions of the street preachers are appalling, they're unacceptable, and they should be dealt with. City Hall's attempt to deal with the problem so far has been to beef up the public nuisance bylaw to crack down on abusive or insulting language. It's a noble attempt, but one that I think is bound to fail. The two street preachers were charged by bylaw officers last week, and they were back at it the next day. While I share Londoners' frustration, I don't agree with how many have chosen to deal with the problem. I am surprised that a community that is so openly caring to those among us struggling with drugs, struggling with opioids, a community that wants overdose prevention sites, a community that wants to address our affordable housing shortfall, a community that has said it wants to solve homelessness and that less than six months ago stated during the municipal election, they want candidates who will help those less fortunate. So I'm surprised that a community that is all of that is so openly hostile to two men who appear to me to be struggling with mental health, with mental health issues. London talks a good game about mental health online. We love our hashtags on Bell Let's Talk Day. 
But when it's a random Thursday, a random Tuesday, a random Sunday, and the street preachers are involved, the compassion we saw during Bella's talk day disappears. Now, I have never been approached. I have never interacted with these men. I have never been accosted. Nothing. I do not know what it feels like, and I can understand why so many people are upset. The words they say, the words they write on their sandwich boards, and their actions are inappropriate, and really they're an exaggerated example of the harassment a lot of women face in many subtle ways on a daily basis. They're an exaggerated example of the catcalls women can experience on the street, which is also wrong. So what I'm saying here today is not a defense of what they say or how they act. Rather, it's a request to a city that considers itself to be compassionate, compassionate to be that to two men who clearly need help. I am not saying I have all the answers or any of the answers. With regards to these two men, I don't know what that compassion looks like. I don't know if they would be receptive to any approaches. My guess would be probably not. I don't know the best way to help them. What I do know is what we're doing right now is not it. I'm not a religious person, but I do try to live by a simple code. Treat others the way you yourself would want to be treated. So maybe the best way is to silence their hate with kindness. Nothing else has worked up until now. Maybe it's kindness that'll do the trick. I admit it's difficult when they have been so overtly offensive in so many different ways to so many different people. But clearly, there are mental health issues at play here. The, the situation needs to be dealt with, but the lack of compassion displayed by so many lenders has been surprising to me. I'll leave that there. Uh, we will break. We will uh, come back in the final 30 minutes of the show. We'll talk about the Blue Jays' upcoming season. We'll talk about the London Knights looking to extend their season in Windsor tonight. That and more when we return. This is Devin in for Mike on London Live on 980 CFPL. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. You smell that? Baseball's in the air. Toronto Blue Jays will start their season today against the Detroit Tigers. You can watch the game on Sportsnet. You can hear it on 980 CFPL. 980 will once again be your home for Blue Jays baseball in London. What can we expect from the year to come? Let's ask Ben Wagner, play-by-play voice for the Blue Jays. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Oh, it's like New Year. Everybody's excited to chat about baseball and, and finally get this thing underway after a long six weeks down in Florida and I think, you know, Montreal was a nice little tune-up. It got the blood pumping, but the lights are definitely brighter here at the Rogers Center. Yeah, there's something uh, special about uh, opening day. Uh, regardless of uh, whether uh, every single team, uh, you know, feels uh, that energy and that rush, regardless of what's in store for you the coming season, opening day is a pretty cool one. 
Well, it's really cool to be around this clubhouse because so many guys are young in their career or going through an opening day for the very first time ever at the major league level. And I just left the clubhouse talking with Trent Thornton, who is over the moon about, one, finding out that he's going to make his major league debut, and then, two, he's going to pitch in the very first series of the regular season. So that's the kind of energy that the Blue Jays players in the clubhouse are feeling on top of the fact that it is, it's opening day, it's a fresh start for everybody from top to bottom, whether you're Kendry Smurals and you've been through a million of these things, or it's the guys like Danny Jansen who's going through his first opening day, even though he had great success at the major league level last year and put himself in a great position to win a job on the plate. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about with this Blue Jays team. It's youth, uh, but also the veteran leadership that's in the clubhouse and kind of how those those vets have been charged up. Uh, fortunately, you know, from where I am, opening day is about the easiest broadcast I'm going to have all year because, <laughs> because we are we are writing on a clean tablet, and we just hit the go button and, and let the crowd do a lot of the talking in the background for us and then let the players kind of shape out nine innings. What are you looking forward to as uh, the season starts from this Blue Jays team? Wow, it starts really at the top in, in Charlie Montoyo. The energy, the communication that we're seeing with him, not only from where Buck, Tabby, Dan, myself, Mike, and, and Scott are sitting, uh, he's been extremely easy to get to know. And his insight into the game and how he's massaging his experience, his own vision for what a clubhouse and what the Blue Jays should look like on the field, plus then what he's hearing and working with the front office, how he's trying to meld it all together. So that's, that's been really, really exciting to get to know him and, and get to know the person that Charlie Montoyo is. And that energy is trickling down into a clubhouse. So you can see it. I, I'm, I'm not making this up for, for people that watch television or listen to the games on the radio and we're kind of gushing at times about the chemistry that's in the room right now. It, it's genuine. It really is genuine. And to be around guys like Justin Smoke and Kendrys Morales that almost have this little hop in their step. You know, it's, it's really fun to see these guys and also the young players, of course. And it's, it's not just the guys that are on the opening day roster. It's probably the, the five to ten other bodies that we may see within the first three or four weeks of the regular season in the next wave of prospects and guys making their way to the major leagues. What is it about uh, Charlie Montoyo that you think is kind of rubbing off on the guys? How does what is it that how he carries himself? What is it that he does that's kind of leading to some of that energy from the team? Do you think? Well, he's upfront and as honest as you can be with a player, with a member of the media, with I think his own family, and I think that speaks to the character that he is. He's got a huge body of work behind him on the player development side, and a lot of the Blue Jays that you're going to see on the field this year had to go through the rigors of riding buses through the Gulf Coast League through the Florida State League to double-A with New Hampshire and then bouncing around and fighting to cling to a spot on the on a major league roster through Buffalo. And Charlie has done all those things. As a player, brief success at the major league level, although it was only a couple of days, but he had a great, a great time when he was in Montreal Expo with those couple of hits. And then, of course, um, his, his track record as a manager going up rung by rung as a coach in the third base box and what he was tasked to do. And then, of course, the bench coach with, with Kevin Cash in the Rays, who surprised everybody last year in one ninety ball game. And you know what? He went out and he, he found a staff working with the front office here that also is very similar to what Charlie went through. And the guys like Shelly Duncan and Matt Bushman just, you know, are, are a couple of guys that I can see within eyesight right now. And then, 
And then, of course, you know, Pete Walker has, has been such an, uh, an impactful coach with Aaron Sanchez and Marcus Stroman. He, he knows that, and he, he treasures that. He knows how big uh, a pitching coach and their relationship can be with, with a young staff. And, and that's why a lot of these guys, you know, have, have bought in and are, are really excited to get rolling. You mentioned uh, there's a bit of a, a, uh, a youth uh, factor to this team. Uh, lots of prospects uh, coming up and still more to come. What should Jays fans expect from the team this year? Well, I think they're going to be a much more aggressive team than what teams in the past have been. And it, that starts with the catchers behind the plate throwing down to behind runners, trying to manage a, manage a, a running game that their opponent is trying to exploit. The Blue Jays are going to try to take first to third on singles to the gap. And I think you're going to have a team that may not hit a boatload of home runs, but there, there's a, this is a team that could plug the gap and get extra base hits and build big innings by doing some of the some of the littler things. I think it'll be an interesting regular season to watch too for how some of the how some of the metrics and and some of the analytics will factor into how the Blue Jays defend their opponents too. We've seen a four-man outfield already in spring training. Who are the guys that will get that deployed against them? What will they do on the infield in terms of unique shifting? There could be a lot of different things that fans have to pay attention to. And, hey, I've got to pay attention to from my broadcast spot, too, because every pitch somebody is moving, somebody is doing something different, and it's exciting. I mean, it's interesting to watch and see what works and how that continues to morph. You blink and all of a sudden uh, Drury's over in uh, shallow right field, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Or all of a sudden, you know, it's Lourdes Gurriel running to right field or Brandon Drury's out on the left. It, it, it happens that quick, too. And it can change then within the at-bat. So if they get two strikes, maybe they, the, the read on a guy is they shorten up the swing, so you want an extra infielder because he may tap a ball on the ground. So it's, um, it's literally the theater of the mind that, that we're left up to relay. Uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr. is rehabbing his oblique injury. Uh, what was uh, uh, spring training with him like there? Because whenever he's around, there seems to be uh, palpable excitement. And when he makes the team this year, at some point, I imagine that's going to transfer to uh, the Rogers Center. Well, he, the good news is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is ahead of schedule. And the oblique injury was only a grade one to begin with. And with a talent like that, the Blue Jays will be extremely careful. And they've tried to tried to reiterate that to Vlad, like, hey, let's just pump the brakes a little bit, slow down, make sure your body is responding day by day, and not worrying about getting full swings. You know, on day one, you feel good. Uh, and and Vladdy, I saw Vladdy, I talked to some people on the minor league side that, that said, you know, he, he was frustrated one day because he wanted to take some extra swings and see if he could up, accelerate the process on his own, and they shut him down. And, and that's, that's the good news, that he's feeling healthy, he's feeling good. Being around him every day, you see the maturity of a 19-year-old that is comfortable in a major league clubhouse because of his lineage. He's embraced by both the guys that are kind of in that, that pocket of, of Latin culture, of course, and the veteran guys and the young guys that he's already played with in the minor leagues. But, you know, there's, there's other guys like Justin Smoke who got to interact with Vladdy for just a couple of games last year, but all of spring training this year, and he was raving about the kind of guy that, that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is. So it's, it's definitely – noticeable when he's in the clubhouse. It's definitely noticeable when he does anything on the field because of the media swell that surrounds him. And let's be honest, you know, if he comes out of the gate and hits 400, 
he's going to push the Blue Jays to make a decision sooner rather than later. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing you on Blue Jays broadcast again this year. Uh, you sounded great last year. It sounded like you've been doing it for uh, 10 years, not just not just one. So it uh, should be a good year for Blue Jays broad- broadcasts. Well, that, that's a great compliment. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, to have an opportunity to do Blue Jays baseball on the radio, it is uh, an extreme honor. And I couldn't be more thrilled to work with Mike Wilner and have Scott MacArthur on board. Uh, and, and hopefully we're putting together a a broadcast that people will enjoy from start to finish. Ben, I appreciate the time and enjoy the season. All right, thanks so much. That's Ben Wagner, play-by-play voice for the Blue Jays on the Blue Jays Radio Network. You can hear today's game on 980 CFBL broadcast starts at 3.30. We'll go from the Blue Jays game right to the London Knights game at 7 o'clock. 980 has you covered for your sports today. We need to break and come back. We'll talk about the London Knights. This is Devin in for Mike on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Uh, Mike's uh, about to head down to Windsor with the London Knights as they look to close out their first round series against the Spitfires, up three games to none. He's almost at the door. I pulled him into the studio just before they left. Uh, Mike, uh, Mike, thanks for uh, telling the entire Knights bus to hold while we talk here. <laughs> I'll be really fast getting to Budweiser <laughs> Gardens. So <laughs> uh, the Knights are up 3 nothing. I, I don't want to jinx things, but are we are we looking like this is going to be a sweep here? Well, I think this is what we have to look at. The Windsor Spitfires did a great job in game number three playing exactly how their head coach wanted them to. Trevor Latowski is their head coach, played in the OHL, the Sarnia Sting, played in the National Hockey League, great young coach. And he basically had them ready to say this was it for them in game three. They had to win that one, and that's how they played it. And they were winning that one 3-2 pretty late. And then the Knights got two more goals from Adam Boquist. He had four in the game. And they ended up winning. So that kind of brings itself to a difficult situation for the Spitfires. And then they poured everything into that. And now you've got a young team that has to say, we got to go up against these guys again. They've beaten us three in a row. So the Knights have to be ready. Because the Spitfires will still come out really, really hard in the first period. But if you could get them down, you should should be able to close things out. So survive that first wave and then build from there. Because they don't want their season to end. And that's going to be enough to make them hungry. So if you can get them behind, then chances are you can finish things off tonight. It was funny when I was watching the game. It's okay. It's two two. It's three two. Oh, like after you know the Knights win game two five nothing. It's a decisive victory. Game three is that one game, regardless of sport, where if the home team can take that one, then maybe there's a bit of momentum. But you get down three nothing. It, it's tough as a number eight seed. Uh, to win a, a playoff series in the OHL. It is. Well, you know what? We have to thank Stu Carter, who is a great statistician, has been with the Windsor Spitfires for a long time. He got curious. And when Stu gets curious, it's a good thing for the rest of us. And he started counting back. And he wasn't looking at the last time that a number 8 seed had upset a number 1 seed. He was looking for the last time that a number 8 seed had won a game <laughs> in the series in the Western Conference of the OHL against a number 1 seed. So it's 2019 this year. It didn't happen last year. Didn't happen in 2017 or 16 or 15. You have to go back to the Plymouth Whalers in 2014 and they won one game. And We'll have to try and go all the way back into the 80s at some point. This would take a lot of digging and a big shovel, but 
to find the last time or the only time, perhaps, that a number eight has beaten a number one, and it may have been the Knights over the Plymouth Whalers back in 2002. That happened. It's so unlike hockey because you always feel, you know, the first round in the hockey playoffs, whether it's the NHL, the OHL, wherever, that's like, for a lot of people, that's like the best round where you can have these upsets. You don't see it in the NBA ever. Sometimes you see it in, in hockey, but maybe not as much in the OHL as I thought. No, no. You know what? Especially when you look at any more, because teams will make that decision right around the trade deadline. Are we going for it, or are we building for next year? And it really gives you a divide. This year, we've got a great divide between the top four teams in the East and West and the bottom four teams. The bottom four teams are all young. They all have bright futures, but that future isn't now. So for Windsor to say, we've got to win four in a row, it's only ever happened four times in the OHL. Once it was done by Windsor when they were about to win their second straight Memorial Cup. They had Taylor Hall and Ryan Ellis and Adam Henrique as 19-year-olds and they fell behind 3 nothing, and then went, wait a minute, and they came back and won. Uh, the Peterborough Peets went through a, a pretty emotional time where Hunter Garland had had his father pass away, and they fell behind 3 nothing. And then uh, they just started winning games, and all the guys on that team said it was like we were getting help. We were getting bounces like you wouldn't believe. Windsor's done it one other time against Sault Ste. Marie, and the first time it happened, Brian Kilray, a legendary coach in the OHL, was with Ottawa, and they were playing Oshawa, and they were within 27 seconds of being eliminated. They were down 5-4. 27 seconds left in the game. And an Oshawa defenseman, Dean Martin, put the puck in his own net. And that tied the game. Ottawa won the game in overtime and then won the next three. So <laughs> it's tough to come back. It's not saying it's impossible because it's happened. But it's up to the Knights to keep the mindset they've had all series long. You go in. You do what they've been talking about. And you hopefully come away with a little bit of rest. You mentioned uh, the, the mindset. They were scuffling a little bit going into the, the playoffs at the end of the regular season. Do you see a different type of mentality, a different type of team now that the playoffs have started? Yes. You see just that that focus is just sharper. And the way that certain players are playing and, and the way that they're used, if you give Dale Hunter and his coaching staff one team to focus on, that team had better find some new tricks because they're going to know all your tricks. And to see what Will Lahead has done in being physical with a young guy like Jean-Luc Foodie and really limiting what he's able to do. And it's not anything crazy. It's just a little bump along the boards. Just every time Foodie's there, just boom, boom, boom. And that wears you down over a series. So it's, it's been really interesting to watch how the Knights have played it. They've been very effective. Uh, they had to survive a, a big push from Windsor, and they did. And now they just need to close out with one last push. And if they can get that win, maybe a little rest before the second round comes, because that's going to be a humdinger of a second round for both the Knights, the Guelph Storm, the Sault Ste. Marie, the Saginaw Spirit. But <laughs> that's an interview for another day. Uh, Mike, uh, thanks for coming in today. Anytime, Devin. Uh, we'll take a break, but you can hear uh, the Knights on the radio tonight. Uh, the Blue Jays will be up first with their uh, season uh, debut on the uh, radio. That starts at 3.30 from the Blue Jays game. We'll go right into the Knights broadcast. Either the Hopefully the Jays game is done at 6.30. We can have the pregame. If not, puck drops at 7 for sure, and you will hear that on 980 CFBL starting at 7 o'clock. We'll take a break. When we come back, more of London Live. This is Devin in for Mike on 980 CFPL.
Just enough time to say goodbye. My thanks to Phil Squire, Don Drummond, Diane Sachs, Dan Gorman, Murray Faulkner, Ben Wagner, and Mike Stubbs for coming on today's show. Thanks to Matt McKinnis for his work on the program. Stay tuned for the Toronto Blue Jays. Coming up next, they will be followed by the London Knights in Windsor. Today's audio gem is a clip from a news broadcast out of the U.S. A reporter was talking about baby showers, and an anchor used that as an occasion to prank her that he and his wife were going to have a baby. Have a great day. Mike will be back with you tomorrow at one. So Everard, if you know of anyone having a baby shower, there you go. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I am very happy to announce that my wife and I have a lot of baby gifts that we got to buy for some friends that, you know, are expecting. So looking forward to that. We'll buy them all at Walmart. <laughs> you should have seen Rhonda's face. <laughs> oh, man. All right, Maribel, thank you for that. <laughs> Wow. We're, we're not. Wow. Just, just I to was be clear, like, oh my gosh. <laughs> no buns in that oven.